From the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing, China, this is the China in the World podcast, hosted by Paul Hanley. Earlier today, I was privileged to sit down with three of my great colleagues from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, Andrew Weiss, Alexander Gabuev, and Paul Stronsky. We talked about Russia, especially Russia relations with China and with the U.S. under the new Trump administration. Andrew, Alex, and Paul are in Beijing this week for the fourth annual Carnegie Global Dialogue on uh, Russia issues. This is a series of discussions we hold each year with scholars from across Carnegie's global network of centers to examine China's evolving foreign policy and international role. And I spoke with our Carnegie panelists a day after Carnegie Tsinghua Center hosted a roundtable with Chinese experts where we explored issues in the U.S.-China-Russia relationship and got their reactions to those discussions. You'll hear our conversation following this introduction. Andrew Weiss is a, is a Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He oversees at Carnegie research in Washington and Moscow on Russia and Eurasia. Andrew was previously the Director for Russian, Ukrainian, and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council staff uh, under President Bill Clinton. Alex Gabuev is based in Moscow. He's a senior associate there for the and the chair of the Russian in the Asia-Pacific program at the Carnegie Moscow Center. Alex previously served as a member of the editorial board of the Commerçant Publishing House and served as deputy editor-in-chief of Commerçant Vlast, which is one of Russia's most influential news weeklies. Paul Stronsky is a senior fellow in Carnegie's Russia and Eurasia program. He's based in Washington, D.C., and he served on the National Security Council staff of President Obama as the director for Russia and Central Asia. And he did that from the years 2012 to 2014. I hope you enjoy the conversation on this podcast. And please leave us a rating on iTunes if you enjoy our podcast. Thanks for listening. Well, thank you all for being here. It's great uh, to have three of Carnegie's top experts on Russia here in Beijing at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center this week for our Carnegie Global Dialogue discussion on China-Russia-U.S. relations. We had some very interesting discussions yesterday with Chinese scholars at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center uh, about the future of U.S.-Russia relationship under President Trump and the trajectory of China-Russia relations. And so I wanted to talk about some of the things we discussed yesterday on the panel, uh, get your reactions. Uh, Andrew Weiss, let me start with you. Of course, Alex and Paul can jump in as well. Uh, you and your colleagues, including Paul Stronsky, Stronsky here, um, just completed a uh, report on uh, the future of U.S.-Russia relations, looking back at the last 25 years of relations. Uh, it's a very important report. Um, it was a task force co-chaired by Richard Armitage, as I understand it, and Senator Chris Murphy. In the report, you talk about the breakdown in U.S.-Russian relations that we've witnessed as being a product of long-standing disagreements about the fundamentals of each country's national security interests and policies. And I wonder if you could start by talking to our listeners about what the major disagreements are in the U.S.-Russia relationship. What is the gap between how Moscow and Washington view 
and assess what has gone wrong in the relationship to cause the breakdown in relations. Well, thanks for having us, Paul. I think the report tries to put the problems of the last couple years in perspective and to say that they are basically an accumulation of grievances and mistrust that's built up over time. And then the effect of that is now being felt across the board. So the you know building blocks of a relationship have been have really been severely damaged. And so it's going to take a long time, irrespective of what the new administration is trying to do, to find a workable way forward. And so what the, the punchline of the report is the problems now are acute. The absence of trust is pervasive on both sides. And the risks and the dangers are also very widely dispersed. Mm -hmm. So the real challenge is how do you manage this relationship and avoid flashpoints, avoid sources of danger. We mm -hmm. see these every day in the skies over Syria. You see this in the Black Sea. You see this with Russia's interference in the U.S. election. There's a lot of real serious danger and mistrust out there. And the challenge for the new president is how do you keep this thing from getting worse? And you talk in the report, and I think it's a very important part of the report, about the, the, the gap in the perspectives between Washington and Moscow on why there's been this breakdown in relations. Can you talk about what the gap is and, and why it's dangerous? Well, I think with the, the Russian side of it, you, we since uh, at least 2013, 2014 have now seen an emboldened Russian approach to international affairs where sort of springing surprises, invading uh, Ukraine, annexing Crimea, deploying military forces in Syria, interfering in the U.S. election. That's kind of the calling card of this much more risk-taking, emboldened Russian foreign policy. On the Russian side, looking at the United States, I think we see great allergy to the United States as a source of direct threat to the Russian regime, fear that the, you know, the core goal of U.S. foreign policy is regime change in Russia, mm -hmm. and a sense that U.S. unilateralism is a dangerous thing. And so anything that one could do on the Russian side to interfere with that, to slow down the U.S. onslaught is seen as a net plus for Russia. And then at the end of the day, having a dysfunctional, messy U.S., which is discredited in the world, which is, has its core alliance relationships uh, disrupted, that's also a, a net plus for Russia right now. Paul Stransky, uh, Andrew just touched on some of the fundamentals, some of the basic challenges in the U.S.-Russia relationship. Now enter new President Donald Trump. Uh, he has flirted with this notion during the campaign of sort of a grand bargain with mm -hmm. Russia. And um, he, uh, National Security Advisor, was just relieved over problems with Russia. Can you talk about the situation as it exists today? How should the Trump administration approach relations with Russia? And what's the prospect for being able to quickly or easily repair relations with Moscow? I mean, I, I'm, I'm very skeptical of President Trump's ability to do this. Um, and I would just point out that his two predecessors, President George W. Bush and President Obama, uh, both uh, had their own resets with Russia. And both of them, um, you know, the first year, the first year or two, they went perfectly fine. Uh, and then we ran into the same problems that, that Andrew was talking about. Um, whether there is differences over, over values, differences over uh, just the general approach to the world, differences of, of opinion over uh, Russia's role and the United States' role uh, in Russia's uh, immediate neighborhood. Um, and those issues are, are still going to be there. Um, and so, um, you know, President Obama's reset, I would say, the first four years were really quite 
quite successful. Um, but then all of the easy stuff was done, mm-hmm. uh, and there's not a whole lot left uh, uh, that is easy uh, on the table. And the same difficult issues, whether it is figuring out an actionable way, a real way to, to collaborate on, on terrorism, um, uh, those are the, the, the questions that, that I think the Trump uh, administration is going to, to struggle with. And so, you know, I think he can, you know, come up with a grand bargain, but actually making that grand bargain work and work in, in sort of U.S. interests, I think, uh, is, is unclear. Uh, he seems to want to focus on uh, ISIS uh, and uh, terrorism in the, in the Middle East. Um, but the sheer difficulty of doing that, first, um, Russia is not uh, fighting ISIS. Um, uh, so that is one, one problem. Uh, and two, the Obama administration, since the Boston Marathon bombing, has really tried to work with the Russians uh, on, on counterterrorism. We just have different approaches to how to do it. Um, and the people who have to have to sort of implement uh, this collaboration are the people in the, the military, the security services, and there's the, they're the people who trust each other the least. And so actually getting over that stumbling block, uh, I think, uh, it was difficult for President Bush. It was difficult for President Obama. And I, I do not really see uh, President Trump um, having a much more success. Alex Gobweb, one of the real advantages of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace is having global centers around the world, including in Moscow. Uh, Alex, you are the resident Jongbatong, or China hand, at the Carnegie Moscow Center. How do you act? <laughs> how, uh, g- give us a sense for how the Russians are seeing this. Is there, uh, was, th- was there some hope at the beginning that Donald Trump and President Putin might be able to bring the relationship to a different point? Uh, has there been a letdown? Uh, has some disappointment? Is the honeymoon period over, as we've read in the Washington Post over the last few days? Uh, and then I'd like to also ask you about China-Russia. Um, how do you see, what is your sense of the China-Russian relationship at this point, and how does that sort of play into any improvements in the U.S.-Russia relationship that might be able to be achieved? Uh, first thing, I don't think there was any honeymoon at all. Like there were propaganda figures or the official Russian talking heads on figure or RT, which are merely made for domestic consumption. And the narrative looks like people wanted to discredit U.S. election in showing that Trump is a really popular candidate and he was defeated by establishment and, you know, by conspiracy between the established political figures and the media and then Trump's victory was actually a surprise. So my reading of Russia's interference in the U.S. election was not to turn the elections in favor of Trump, but to send a message to Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton because uh, Putin believes deeply that Hillary was trying to influence his election in 2011. He personally and publicly blamed her for that. And just saying, okay, I don't have a lot of layers of influence in the U.S. because I don't have any soft power tools, you know. Uh, RT has less viewers in Great Britain, for example, than the Welsh Channel. Uh, so it's not a really a powerful tool. Uh, but I have my hackers. It's isometrical warfare, and I can send you a message that can inflict pain on you, and you better don't mess with my next presidential election. So that's mm. my reading of what was part of it, you know, discrediting, inflicting pain. Uh, and then definitely the Russians overperformed. Mm. You know, that was definitely not the most decisive factor, but it was one mm. of the factors on the ingredients in this cocktail. Mm-hmm. So people are very careful and mindful. All sensible people in Moscow I talked to, including government figures, 
uh, just are more or less aware how much risk there is. Problem is that Hillary was so hated. People said we knew exactly what to expect. It's going to be Obama 2.0, but worse because Hillary is really ideological. She was there to say that uh, the U.S. will not allow the Soviet Union to be resurrected. It will deny Russia's special uh, sphere of influence in the post-Soviet space. So Trump is something new, perhaps more risky, mm. but also more desirable. But Russia will be very careful. In so no illusions days. about Donald Trump and what that might mean for Russia. Um, but let's talk, if we could, just in terms of our final question here for all three of you. We spent a lot of time yesterday at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center talking about this notion of the triangular dynamics between U.S., China, and Russia, with each side looking to use their relationship with the other as leverage uh, in their relationship with the other side. Does this dynamic, in your view, still exist between the U.S. and China and Russia, as it did in the early 70s under President Nixon and, and Henry Kissinger as national security advisor? Or does the U.S. and Russia, do the U.S. and Russia, can they gain, gain any leverage from these relations to use toward the other party? And if so, how has Trump impacted this calculus? Can he impact this calculus if this dynamic exists? Let me turn to you, Andrew, first to start. When I first started hearing these intimations out of planet Trump that the <laughs> U.S., Russia relationship could be used as a tool to deal with a rising China and then ultimately contain it. I thought, this is so ludicrous and so unworkable. But you keep hearing these these themes just as you hear this kind of Islamophobic stuff emanating out of the Trump administration as well, that you know, Russia is a potential partner mm. to manage uh, the threat of Islamic terrorism. I think it does, you know, have, you know, a kind of... Uh, purchase over what animates the new administration. I think that dog won't hunt. I think mm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a faulty logic and a, and a really simplistic idea of how the global order is going to be structured. Um, and I think the, you know, for the Russians, the relationship with China is really important. It's, it's part of what makes Russia great again. It's what gives Russia clout on the international scene that it has a junior partnership with a rising China. So the idea that there's a trade here to be done and that Vladimir Putin's going to be seduced away from China's embrace by this brash new American president again, I think it, it's just a, it's, it's the height of silliness. Alice, any different perspectives you know, from the Russia perspective? And, and can you talk a little bit about what we heard from the Chinese scholars in terms of their views on whether or not a U.S.-Russia rapprochement, if it's even in the, in the cards, how that would affect China-Russia? I think that Chinese scholars and experts in policy community was worried on the onset because there is a sort of uncertainty. And if you read the Russian public message of how enthusiastic Russia is about Trump, uh, people were unsecure whether Russia's pivot to China is so stable. But right now, I think these things cool down and people have realized that a, Russia is not going anywhere because confrontation with China is too costly. We've been there, done that over uh, 60s and 70s and 80s, and it just costs you too much. And then there is just natural partnership in areas like global governance with Russia and China share a lot of interests, and they don't share these interests with the U.S. And Russia's assessment of risks in partnering with China after Crimea is much less because Russians really looked carefully into those things. So, uh, and then you have this personal chemistry between Putin and Xi, which is functioning, and we don't know what the personal relationship between Putin and, and Xi will be in the real world. 
Last point, uh, yes, the triangular relationship that this template of Kissingerian and diplomacy might be relevant for, for some people, but I think there are so many new cards on the table, including rising India, Japan, and it's so much more complex that you just cannot say that this triangle mm -hmm. is going to define everything. Uh, I don't think that is a really relevant concept for the 21st century. Paul Stransky, any different views on the triangular relationship? Um, no, I mean, I, I sort of have a, a very similar views. Uh, you know, I do think, uh, you know, the uh, President Putin wants to check American power, um, and alone he has a difficult time doing that. But I think together with China, um, it is a lot easier for, for him uh, uh, to go about, uh, you know, defending uh, Russian interests, pushing back at, at uh, attempts to intervene in the sovereignty of, of former Soviet states, sovereignty of Russia, uh, his belief that that is, is what is going on. Um, so I, I would agree with both of them. I mean, I don't think there's all that much there there. Um, and I also uh, think there's disagreements uh, inside the Trump administration over whether this is a, mm. this is a, a reasonable uh, and feasible policy. There's disagreements um, over uh, how to um, uh, engage Russia. Uh, there's disagreements over the importance of America's alliances with both uh, NATO, um, Japan, and, uh, and South Korea. Um, and I think we are starting to see uh, cabinet members, the vice president, uh, break uh, with some of what uh, uh, tr President Trump has said. Is this coming from President Trump himself, this notion of a, a grand bargain with Russia, or does it come from some of his advisors? Um, I think it probably comes from a combination of both. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's not necessarily the, the foreign policy advisors. Uh, but it's more of the ideological uh, uh, advisors, uh, the ones that um, you know, he relied on to sort of develop his, his, his uh, campaign messages. Um, and the problem that he now faces is these were very good campaign messages to help him get elected, but how to actually turn that into policy. Um, and uh, it's really quite difficult. Uh, the people he's been relying on so far in his you know, close inner circle um, are not the foreign policy experts, um, and they are clashing with people both uh, within his own administration uh, as well as people uh, in, uh, in Congress. Uh, and that includes the Republican Party in Congress uh, in the Senate with some um, establishment uh, foreign policy uh, uh, figures uh, in the Senate. So I think you know, it's still very much a work in progress, um, and I think it's going to be a while before we get a real sense of of what his policies towards towards Russia really are going to be and what his policies towards China are, are really going to be. And I don't think that he will be able to do this triangulation very effectively. Well, we couldn't have picked a better time to have the three of you out for the Carnegie Global Dialogue on, on U.S.-Russia-China relations. Thank you for coming out. My last question is going to be for Andrew. Uh, Andrew, the last time you were in China was 1987, 30 years ago. What, what are your thoughts on China today? What do you see as the most striking differences? In... Very little has changed. No, seriously. It's, you know, it's, you know, Russia is, uh, you know, just a fraction of the influence on the global scene, on the development of the global economy that China represents. And it's the minute you get here, it's just, it's an overarching sense of expectation, of confidence and significance of what's unfolded here over the last 30 years. It's, it's truly one of the most amazing and most impressive global phenomena ever experienced. Well, we don't have to wait. We hope we don't have to wait 30 years to get the three of you to come back again. 
Thank you very much for being here this week for the Carnegie Global Dialogue and for joining me on the Carnegie Tsinghua China and the World podcast. Thanks, Paul. Thank, thank you. you. Well, thank you very much for spending time with us today. That's it for this edition of the Carnegie Tsinghua China and the World podcast. I encourage you to explore our site and see the work of all our scholars at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. Thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next time.